Joshua has been the installed leader of Israel for just a few months. But the first few months under his leadership has been incredibly eventful. After laboring for 40 years as Moses' assistant, he has now been, just in the last few months, installed as both the political, military, and religious leader of Israel. He's 80 years old. I have to keep saying that because this is an astounding fact to me. It should be to you. Joshua is a senior citizen. He's an old man with all the aches and pains that go with that. And so it certainly wasn't easy for him to march through the desert, to lead military affairs, to burn the candle at both ends, to be up early, to stay up late, dealing with all the issues. And on top of that, his best friend, his former confidant and boss, Moses, is now dead. And now to follow that, a generation of faithless Israelites have died after wandering in the desert for 40 years. Only two men remain of that generation, Joshua and Caleb. This means all of Joshua's friends, his peers, are dead. He and Caleb are the only people in Israel alive who are over the age of 60. Now let me remind you where we've come from in the book of Joshua. If you want to just look back to Joshua 1, in chapter 1, Joshua is told multiple times to be strong and courageous. Soon we're going to see why. In Joshua 3, God supernaturally parts the Jordan River just like he had done 40 years earlier with the Red Sea. The nation of Israel enters into the land of Canaan, the promised land, and they come in on dry ground. They build memorials so they won't forget. In chapter 5, all the men are baptized, actually circumcised, same thing, the Old Testament version. And the nation celebrates the Lord's Supper, Passover, same thing. Before they ever lift a finger in battle to take the promised land, Joshua encounters the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 5. Christ comes to him as the greater Joshua, as a soldier with a drawn sword, and says he's the one who will lead the people of Israel in triumph. And they have their first battle. Jericho falls, the first mighty city of the nation, by God's supernatural power. And before the battle of Jericho, as God's mouthpiece, Joshua tells all the nation, don't take any of the spoils of the city. It's contraband. The next city up to be conquered is little Ai. But upon approaching, the downsized Israelite force is routed, and they suffer casualties. They flee and they run away. They turn their back to the city of Ai, and they sprint back to camp and seek, seek God. Joshua soon finds out from the word of Jehovah that there's sin in the camp, and the Lord says he will not be with them in power and strength until they root out the hidden sin. The culprit is discovered, Achan, the one who's offended God. He's judged, stoned, burned, he and his household. And this brings us to Joshua 8. And I hope you'll have your Bible open because there's so much packed into the first two verses of Joshua 8. And what I want you to feel is the rhythm of how God deals with his people after he's just dealt with them in chastisement. What comes next? Chapter 7 was God's chastising. But after chastisement and discipline and repentance and humbling, I want you to hear the tone in God's voice afterwards. Let's seek the help of the Lord now. O oh, gracious God, give us humble, teachable, obedient hearts that we may receive what you've revealed and do what you've commanded. We pray in the name of Jesus, our only Savior. Amen. 
Look at the first two verses, Joshua 8. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise, go up to Ai. This is the small village. If anybody is still confused about where we are geographically, Ai is the small village where the giant army of Israel was just routed. The Lord says, see, I've given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only his spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. Lay an ambush for the city behind. Now what I want you to see in this preface, we'll call it, to chapter 8, the immediate transition from chapter 7 and how God's tone, I really don't have a better term than that, how his tone changes. The relationship has now been restored between God and his people. An evidence of that, an illustration that God's blessing has been restored, is simply by the fact that God speaks to Israel, renews communication with Joshua. Just the fact that the Lord comes to him. Listen to these words in chapter 8, and let me see if you value them the way you should. Now the Lord said to Joshua, God has not turned his back. He's speaking to his people. How good it is for God's people to hear from their living God again. But I want to quickly help you think. There are so many lessons in this text. I want you to quickly think about the lessons Joshua has just learned in the nation from failure. I don't want us to sprint away too quickly from Joshua chapter 7. Now, we don't want to dwell. There's a a, a tightrope we have to walk through here. We don't want to dwell on the Joshua 7s of our life always. We don't want to live there all the time. But there's great instruction for us there if we'll learn. If you'll learn from failure. If you're wise and teachable, failure always brings valuable lessons. One of the saddest things I can imagine, and I've seen it, is someone who's gone through incredible setback, failure, and trial, and they learn nothing from it. Because there's always something to be learned from failure. In the last chapter, we saw self-confidence in the first attack on AI. Israel went carelessly about the matter and didn't realize the need of divine support. Never was there a servant of God who learned more from failure than the apostle Peter. That's why I had J. Paul read that to you a moment ago from John 21. Nothing could have been more humiliating. No failure could have been greater than his three-time denial of the Lord Jesus Christ on Monday, Thursday evening. But when Peter came to himself, he saw what a bruised reed he'd been leaning on. He saw what a foolish thought it was when he had said to Jesus the night before, Though I should die with you, I'll not deny you. Even if everyone else denies you, I'll not deny you. How miserably placed his self-confidence had been. But failure had its desired effect. It had the effect of startling him, of showing him his danger, of leading him to lift up his eyes to the hills to show him where his help came from. It's amazing to see just a few weeks after that failure at Pentecost, who do we see standing up at Pentecost as the spokesman for the infant church in Jerusalem? The same Peter who had failed miserably just six or seven weeks before. If there's something I want you to see tonight, and there are actually several lessons, but the first one is, is failure is not final. And God restores his repenting people. Those two things go hand in hand. Failure is not final in the life of the Christian, and God restores his repenting people. Failure should always make the true believer more prayerful, 
more dependent, more open to godly counsel and rebuke, more humble, more concerned about not grieving the Holy Spirit. How foolish we are if we don't learn lessons from our failures. In fact, I would tell you as a spiritual, as a devotional exercise, perhaps sometime on a Sunday afternoon, sit down and write out the great failures in your life. Maybe they're sin. Maybe they're familial failures. Maybe they're financial poor choices. And then under them, can you write this? Lessons learned from these. You can write, this is the time God humbled me. This is the time God taught me dependence. This is the time God told me to hold my tongue. This is the time God taught me to speak in this way. Can you even right now think of lessons that God has taught you in your failures? If you've learned nothing from your failures, if you can recount no lessons, then most certainly God will take you through them again and again until you learn the lesson. But what I want you to see tonight is immediately God's encouragement. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid nor be dismayed. That's his opening word to Joshua and indeed Israel after the incident of Joshua 7. Don't fear or be dismayed. I want you to think why he says this. Achan's sin, the sin of one person in the camp, had dismayed and discouraged Joshua and all the nation of Israel. You'll know that one of my dearest friends, of course, like all of my really good friends, has been dead for 300 years. Um, This last week, the deacons and some helpers were moving all of my books from the office building over to our new offices in the Dodds Trailer Park. And as the deacons were loading up my books into boxes, I kept saying, careful, those are my friends you're taking over there. Well, one of my dearest friends is Matthew Henry, that godly Presbyterian minister who preached morning and evening every Sunday for 35 years. He preached New Testament texts in the morning and Old Testament texts in the evening. And yes, I've copied him slavishly. By the way, you need to own his unabridged commentary. Make sure you don't get the abridged version because it's horrible what the abridgments have been. Get his unabridged commentary on the whole Bible. If you have that, you will always have a reliable exposition of the scriptures. But listen to what Henry says. Corruptions within the people of God weaken the hands and dampen the spirits of our leaders more than opposition from without. Treacherous Israelites are to be dreaded infinitely more than malicious Canaanites. Henry is rightly saying, which is it that has the power to take the wind out of the sails of God's leaders? Is it opposition from the pagans outside? No, that's always expected. It's expected that the world will not be a friend to grace. But what discourages the leaders of God's people, what every time comes as a dismaying providence, is when the people inside the very covenant household are traitorous. Why was Joshua struggling with discouragement? Why does God come and say to him at the very beginning of the conversation, don't be discouraged and dismayed? He was dismayed because of betrayal by his own man, by a man who had sworn covenant oaths of loyalty to Jehovah and his people and proved to be a traitor and an apostate. You see, God's leaders are sheep too. They can be timid, fearful, and have need to be regularly encouraged. Let me say this now to the congregation. Don't think, our elders, they would never grow discouraged. They're men of steel. They're emotionless. Nothing phases them and bothers them. 
Let me disabuse you. Your elders and your pastors are sheep like you, and we have need of regular encouragement. I can find no son of Adam in the Bible who's stronger than Joshua. He is a man's man. John Wayne looks like a little girl in a dress compared to Joshua. This is a man, Joshua is. But this man needs encouragement. God comes to him and says, don't be afraid or be dismayed. If Joshua needs encouragement, how much more do your elders and ministers here need that? Our God knows our frame and our weakness. It's encouraging to hear how often our Lord tells his people, especially leaders, to fear not. Don't be discouraged and dismayed. And what I would recommend to you, another Sunday afternoon's project, is get a concordance and survey all the statements that read like this. Fear not all the don't be discouraged or the don't be dismayed statements to encourage you the next time you're fearful. And you'll be astounded to see how often God gives solid encouragement to his people, especially to leaders. By the way, this isn't the first time that Joshua's heard these words. Let me remind you just a few times he's heard them. Back in Exodus 14, as a 40-year-old man in his prime, as the second in command to Moses, the Egyptian army has decided they released their slaves just a little too soon, and so they're after them to reclaim them. They go to pursue the nation of Israel, and they find them. Israel is backing up against the very edge of the Red Sea. The Egyptian army, with all their chariots and horsemen and armed men by the thousand, the mightiest fighting force in the history of the world up until that point. As they bear down, thundering across the plains towards the Red Sea on this nation of slaves, what does God say to them? This looks like a time when the world is about to crush the church. And the Lord says these words in Exodus 14. Joshua hears them. Don't be afraid. Stand still. See the salvation of the Lord. Moses is God's mouthpiece at that point, and he encourages with the word of the Lord the people of Israel at that moment when it looks like they have the most to fear. Unarmed, former slaves with their back to the sea. But God comes to them through Moses and says, it's not the time to be afraid. It's the time to watch your God work. No doubt Joshua is sitting there at that time as Moses second in command saying, if this isn't the time to be afraid, when is the time to be afraid? And he learns a lesson about encouragement. It is in the darkest hour that God chooses to come to his people, always saying, this is not a hard situation for me. Be encouraged. I'm about to deliver you. And then 40 years later in Deuteronomy 31, Joshua is just about to take the reins from Moses. God is handing the mantle. He's taking it off the shoulders of Moses, putting it on the shoulders of Joshua. And we hear this. Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to your fathers to give them. You shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord said, He is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He'll not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. That's Moses' final charge to Joshua. And so Joshua's heard these words that you see in verse 1. As you look at those, he's heard them before. But now God comes and renews the charter, renews the command. Don't fear or be dismayed. And parents, there's a pedagogical lesson here. Just because you're, you've told your children once you need to do this doesn't mean that you don't have need to come back over and over again and remind them. 
How does God communicate with his children? He doesn't say, I told you once back in Exodus 14 to not be fearful or dismayed. That ought to be sufficient. The Lord repeats himself to his children over and over again. We need reminders. Parents, your children need reminders. Unless they're angels, and I don't think they are, they need reminders. A good portion of biblical preaching is just reminding us of the truths we already know. And that's what God does to Joshua. This isn't the first time Joshua's heard this. We have, God has even built in reminders in the rhythm of the Christian life. Reminders to repeat certain truths to us over and over again. Think of the sacrament of the Lord's table. We do it every month. Perhaps there are some of you who are jaded and think, I did that once. Why do I need it again? Because every time we celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, God is repeating. He's saying to you and I over and over again, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell in your midst. He's renewing his covenant with us. And we need to be reminded frequently over and over again, we're saved by grace, saved by the finished work of Christ. And that's what God does here in the first two verses of Joshua. He's reminding Joshua of what he already knows. But then I want you to notice quickly, what does God give him? Look at verse 1. He gives Joshua an assurance of success, a promise to believe with faith. He says in verse 1, in this encouraging promise, Take all the people of war with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. Now, I want you to notice how certain the promise is. We're talking about the promises of a God who cannot lie. Joshua doesn't hear from God, Joshua, who knows, maybe you'll get a win today. That's not what he says. He says, Joshua, I have given the city into your hand. It's a past tense accomplished word. I have done it. In God's mind, in his omniscience, it's already a done deal. He's decreed it, and so it must come to pass. He's going to give the city to Joshua. It's a promise. Some of you have been given promises that have been broken. I spoke of this this morning. You've had a promise from a dad, a spouse, a friend. You're skeptical of promises. But I want you to hear this evening that our God is always not only a promise-making, but a promise-keeping God. He makes Joshua a promise. This is from the God who is the truth and cannot lie. Here's his promise. I've already given the city into your hand. I've decreed it, and it will come to pass. What are you to do when God makes a promise like this? I want you to reason from Joshua 8, 1 to your life. You have to do a couple of things. First of all, we must regard the promises of God as an accomplished fact. Even if the fulfillment of that promise lies in the future, such as the return of Christ for his judgment and glory, we must regard that as an accomplished fact. That's how God tells Joshua to think. He says, I've already given it into your hand, the king of Ai. Right then, Joshua is standing in the camp of Israel, a few miles away from Ai. God says, it's a done deal. I've already done it. When God makes a promise, this is the essence of the gospel in the Christian life. When God makes a promise, we are to regard it as an accomplished fact. We're to believe God's word of promise. We're to do something that is at the very core and foundation of the Christian life, to exercise faith. When we hear the promises of God, we're to trust a sovereign God. There's a second thing to do when God makes a promise, and this is the part that many stumble over. Not only are we to regard the promise as an accomplished fact, 
but we're to expend every effort and use every means. This is an emphasis constantly repeated in both the Old and New Testament. God's sovereignty and our responsibility. How we need to learn this. There is no inconsistency. Listen to me so carefully. There's no inconsistency between God's careful guarantee of victory and Joshua's careful military maneuvers. Look at Joshua in verse 2, what God says to him. You shall do. He's commanding action. He's commanding him to take responsibility. You shall do to Ai and its king just as you did to Jericho and its king. God says, I'm giving it into your hand. And then he tells Joshua what to do. And what we see is this, this tight agreement between sovereignty and responsibility. God is saying to Joshua, first of all, Joshua, I sovereignly decreed that I'm going to give you the city. And then here's what you need to do. It's just like in the gospel. When God says he's sovereignly chosen some from before the foundation of the world. He's brought their salvation to pass. Accomplished that in Christ. And then he says, and you need to repent and believe. You need to use the means. You need to exercise responsibility towards the gospel. And there's no contradiction in terms here. If anyone should be inclined to ask right now. But the Lord just told Joshua in verse 1, he'd given the city into his hand. Why is it necessary for Joshua and the whole army to go to so much trouble? If someone would ask that, they would be showing a misunderstanding of the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's accountability. God's sovereignty and predestination of the end, namely the victory over Ai, doesn't render useless our use of means. God not only predestines the end, he predestines the means. God has ordained I'm going to give you the city through the means of your warfare. So Joshua, get busy and you'll be successful. God's gracious assurance to his people of victory and of triumph are not designed to promote laziness, but instead to stimulate and encourage diligence. That's why we read in the scripture this promise of sovereign grace. I've chosen a number that no man can number. I'll have these elect from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And then God says... Go out and get busy in missions and evangelism and preach the gospel and bring them in. We as Calvinists don't say, God has chosen a number that no man can number. And so we're just going to sit back and watch him save them. No, we know that God will save his elect as he uses the means of the proclamation of the gospel. That's why we at Woodruff Road, this coming year, we will spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to support missionaries who will leave comfort and leisure And go to places where the gospel is not proclaimed because we know that God will save the nations as we go and use the means. God assures Joshua's success and so he says get busy. Notice another astounding thing in this text. It's breathtaking coming out of chapter 7. This is God's generosity. Look at verse 2 very carefully in chapter 8. He's going to tell them of a gift he's going to give them with gratitude. Hopefully the memory of chapter 7 is very vivid in your mind right now. Look at verse 2 of chapter 8. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. As opposed to taking any of its people as slaves, they are to be completely wiped out. Now immediately when I read verse 2, here's my first thought. Achan. Why couldn't you just wait for a few more days? 
Achan, who couldn't wait, lost everything. The rest of the nation obediently waited, and they were quickly rewarded. This principle is one that needs to be proclaimed from every biblical pulpit in an age of self-gratification and immediacy. Do you know what the lesson is? Wait on God's timing. God gives us all things richly to enjoy. He delights to give good things to his children when he desires. From the very beginning of our race, the Adamic race has always wanted what was forbidden them, usually just too soon. Adam, why didn't you concentrate on all the fruit of the trees you could freely eat? Why the one that's forbidden? Achan, God is determined to give all the wealth of Canaan to the Israelites. If you could have just waited a few more days, you'd have a tent bulging with Canaanite spoil. But no, you weren't happy to wait. You had to have it now. So above all the stones, remember where Achan and his family and his livestock and his possessions and his thievery are right now? They're right over there outside the camp in the valley of Achor, where Achan and his family are underneath stone to death. And above those stones, you could have planted a sign that said, he couldn't wait. Some of you here tonight are single, and there's an application to you. Some of you who are single are struggling mightily or maybe just succumbing with this very principle. God has promised you something that will be incredibly delightful in terms of marital sexuality. But I have one single word for you. Wait. God made you with your sexual desires. He knows your urges, but he's given you plenty of grace and power to wait for his person and his time. He's not stingy and tight-fisted. If you look around right now, there are men and women surrounding you who waited 10, 20 30 years. And God richly rewarded them and they have no regrets. Let God arrange the order in which his gifts are distributed. Don't try to hurry providence as Sarah did when she gave her maidservant Hagar to Abraham. Sarah had cause to repent of her impatience. Let me tell you what the lesson is. When God says to his people, you can take all the spoil and all the cattle now. If there's any lesson our generation should profit from, is they want all the blessings now. They've even theologized it. There's been a gospel created around this, getting all the blessings now. It's called the health and wealth gospel. And I use the term gospel there advisedly. The health and wealth gospel says, you can have now what God has intended for you to have in the eternal state. If you'll but name it and claim it. With rampant impatience, they say, I want the diamonds now. I want healing and perfect health now. I want it right now. Instead of recognizing that God would have you wait 20 years, 40 years, and then you'll have all the riches of glory. You'll have perfect health. No more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. The health and wealth gospel, by the way, can never deliver on what it promises. They can never pay off. They can never give what they offer. What they desperately, what this whole segment of Christendom needs to learn is wait a little while. God will give you all the riches of his kingdom as he does for all his children. Look at another one of the wise lessons from this text. And I want you to notice the preface for the next context. God's battle plan. Look at verse 1 and 2. He uses different methods in verse 1 and verse 2. Look at verse 2 especially. God's going to give Joshua the battle plan. Lay an ambush for the city behind it. Now there's something... We need to learn here a principle in addition to waiting. 
God changes his men from Moses to Joshua, from one generation to another, lest we start trusting in men instead of trusting the Lord. And now we see that he changes his methods so that we won't just trust in one method instead of him as the living God. Did you notice what I said? It's the best I can do at alliteration. Dan wouldn't help me out. But God changes his men and he changes his methods. The strategy that God gave Joshua, stare at it there in verse 2. It's a brief order. The strategy that God gave Joshua for taking Ai is almost opposite the strategy and method he gave for Jericho. The Jericho operation involved a week of marches that were carried on openly in the daylight. The attack on Ai, oh, different order. The attack on Ai is going to involve a covert night operation that prepares the way for a daylight assault. The whole army was to be united at Jericho, but Joshua was to divide the army for the attack on Ai. God performed a mighty miracle at Jericho when he caused the walls to fall down flat. But there's going to be no such miracle at Ai. Joshua will simply obey God's instructions, set an ambush, lure the people of Ai out of the city, and the Lord will give them victory. You need to learn this. God's methods with his people can and do vary. They might be miraculous. They might just be ordinary providence. Think of this even in the life of Jesus. We have in the Gospel of John, very close together, the account of of Jesus feeding two separate crowds of people. On one occasion, Jesus miraculously feeds the crowd by multiplying fish and bread. On another occasion, in John 4, verse 8, Jesus just sends his disciples to buy food. So the people could never trust in a method. They had to trust in the God of the methods. Let's not be, and I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, let's not be Methodists. I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. Let's not trust a method. Let's instead turn our trust completely to our God who will work how he wills. My favorite example of that is being on a periodic basis. It used to happen more frequently. Now I think people have just given up on us. But we will have visitors who will come, and they'll meet me at the back door, and they'll say, you know, I really enjoyed Woodruff Road today. I enjoyed the worship, the preaching of the word. The people seem very kind. I just have one problem. How can anybody ever be converted at Woodruff Road? And I'll say, by the preaching of the word. They'll say, no, I don't think it can happen that way. I think you have to, after preaching, I think you have to have your organist softly playing a few stanzas of Just As I Am, and you need to give an invitation, and people have to walk an aisle. That's the only way people can be saved. So they're usually shocked when I stop them and say, Friend, what you're speaking of is a method. And it's actually a very recent method, only being a product of the last 170 years. It has no historical background. You can look, by the way, in vain in the book of Acts. Just go home and look at your concordance. Look up the word invitation. Mm, Nothing there. So I'll say to people, you know there were billions of people who were saved before the first invitation was ever given. And there will be billions saved after the practice goes out of favor. Don't trust in a method. Trust in God and his gospel instead. How do we apply this word? God is encouraging Joshua after setbacks. He lifts him up out of the dust. So what do you do after a setback? A trial? A failure? A difficult time in your life? A humbling sin? A financial setback? A disappointment? A grief? A broken relationship? What do you do? Do you lick your wounds? Do you go sit on the sidelines and say, God doesn't love me anymore? Or do you hear God's gracious call that extends to you today? Fear not. 
I'm going to give you success. I'm going to richly give you all things to enjoy. Re-enter the battle. Our God is a restoring God. Our God is a gracious God. Joshua learned this after the utter abysmal failure of Joshua 7. And Joshua is going to know now in Joshua 8, as we'll see as we unpack it in weeks to come, Joshua will know the incredible high of God's power poured out on his behalf in Joshua 8. Peter learned about abysmal depths of failure by night. And then just a few weeks later, he knows the glorious power of the Holy Spirit in his life at Pentecost. If you've been on the sidelines saying, Carl, I'm just licking my wounds. God has put me here. Listen carefully. You came here tonight by God's sovereign decree because God has something to say to you tonight. God is saying to you through his word, don't fear or be dismayed. You have the world, the flesh, and the devil to battle, and I'll give you success. Re-enter the battle. Go forward in his strength and with his promise of blessing. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank you that you come to your people, that you don't leave them as orphans, but you come and renew your covenant grace to them. Lord, just like Joshua, even now, there are many in this congregation this week who have known trials, failures, and have come here sad and downtrodden. Lord, by this word, by the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit, lift their heads. Give them grace and strength to reenter the fray. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would, as you commanded Joshua, that we would not simply sit back on our hands waiting for you to fulfill the promises, but we would go forward using the means you've ordained, that we would not trust in human methods, but we would trust in you, that you would give us strength and courage. How we thank you for this text, this text of restoration and renewal. And so by your Holy Spirit, even in the coming week, bring this word to our remembrance and encourage us. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus.